I'm okay. I'm wired up. <laughs> good evening. It's good to be with you this evening. And uh, I would just like to share some thoughts, what I believe God would have us look at this evening. By way of introduction, I'd like to read a couple of scripture portions. The first one's found in Numbers chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14, and we'll read from verse 39. And Moses told these sayings unto all the children of Israel, and the people mourned greatly. And they rose up early in the morning, and got them up into the top of the mountain, saying, Lo, we be here, and we will go up unto the place which the Lord hath promised, for we have sinned. And Moses said, Wherefore do ye transgress the commandment of the Lord? But it shall not prosper. Go not up, for the Lord is not among you, that ye be not smitten before your enemies. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites are there before you. And ye shall fall by the sword, because ye are turned away from the Lord. Therefore the Lord will not be with you. But they presumed to go up unto the hilltop, Nevertheless, the ark of the covenant of the Lord and Moses departed not out of the camp. Then the Amalekites came down, and the Canaanites which dwelt in that hill, and smote them, and discomforted them, even unto Hormah. And again, one other reading is found in Second Samuel chapter 5, and we'll read from verse 22, please. And the Philistines came up yet again, and spread themselves in the valley of Repham. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, Thou shalt not go up, but fetch a compass behind them, and come upon them over against the mulberry trees. And let it be, when thou hearest the sound of a going in the tops of the mulberry trees, that then thou shalt bestir thyself. For then shall the Lord go out before thee to smite the host of the Philistines. And David did so, as the Lord had commanded him, and smote the Philistines from Geba on till they came to Gaza. And we know the Lord will bless to us the reading of his precious word this evening. I want us to consider planning and timing tonight. It's something we're all familiar with, and it's something we do on a daily basis. The mother of the home... She plans, she makes preparation, and incorporated in that is the time factor. Meals have to be at a certain time so that the family can attend to those things, whether it be school, work, or other pursuits. The student, in his preparation, makes plans, homeworks, special tasks, and incorporated in that is the time factor. They have to be in by a certain day or they're in trouble. The worker plans his day and included in that is the time factor. It's part of life. We do it daily. For some of us, it is a situation that just comes naturally. We don't have to think about it. It just happens. Some of us, no doubt, are better at it than others. My wife keeps reminding me, women are better. They can multitask. 
Some obviously are in agreement. But it's something we do daily. But what I want to focus on is not the natural aspect of planning and timing, but on the spiritual aspect. When we got saved, and as we progressed, we had certain thoughts, certain leadings, thinking of how we were going to progress in our Christian faith, the line of commitment we were going to make, what we thought God would like us to get involved in. And we had our plan. But the question I want us to consider this evening is this. Is the plan that we have for ourselves, no matter how commendable and good it may be, is it the plan that God has for us? And by way of illustration, I want to look at the two situations that we have referred to in Scripture concerning the nation of Israel. There's two different time factors, two different sets of circumstances, but it is not that we point the finger, but that as we look at them, they may become a window through which the light of understanding and revelation may shine this evening. But before I do that, I would like to just make a couple of comments based upon some 40 years in leadership concerning planning. For many, when they become a Christian, as I've said, and they have their plans and ideas, and for them, the step forward in pursuit of such plans is Bible college. And I think Bible colleges are great. And for those who are able to go to them, it's a tremendous way to get a better understanding of the Scriptures to grow spiritually. But for some, they feel, well, this is what I feel God wants me to do. And this way forward, firstly, Bible college, and that's me automatically on the road. I want to tell you, good and all as Bible college is, that is not the situation in the majority of cases. For a few, it does happen, but for the majority, it doesn't. And when it doesn't, then leadership find themselves dealing sometimes with difficult situations. For people, having come from Bible college, having completed their studies, having got maybe a qualification from Bible college, and they return to their local assembly, and things don't happen. Nothing's taking place. They're not moving forward as they would like to, and they become frustrated. They become angry, and they began, begin to find fault with people. They find fault with the pastor. They find fault with the leadership. They find fault even with people in the congregation. Because what they want to do isn't happening. And they seem to blame everybody, but face up to the reality that God has other plans for them. Some decide, well, if it's not going to happen, I'm going to do nothing. And yet God, in his love and mercy, has opened all their doors where he has closed the door. They're still knocking and ignoring the doors that God has opened for them. 
and they have refused to go in through those doors. When you speak to them, they say, well, I don't believe that's what God wants me to do. And they will inevitably make reference to confirmations. Something said on the platform, a word of prophecy. They were in a prayer line. Somebody prayed with them, gave them a word. I praise God that God uses such methods to bring confirmation. But when you analyze what they have picked up, what they have referred to, and when you put it in the right context so often, it's not the meaning that they have taken out of it that the speaker expected us to take. Everything that happens is spiritualized. Everything that happens is confirmation because they have a tunnel vision. They can see nothing else. They're not open to any other suggestions or offerings of God at all. And everything has that slant on it because they're looking for confirmation for their own particular plan and idea. Some have wasted their lives. Others, they leave. They join a new fellowship. I've met them. And as I terminate, they're full of the joys of spring. They're bubbling over. They're happy. They're thrilled with their new fellowship. And they start to tell you what they're involved in. And you suddenly realize, hey, we wanted you to do that when you were with us. But you said you didn't believe that was God's plan for you. But for people like that, I find very much that they're in what I term the honeymoon period. Be it a year, maybe a little less, maybe a little longer. Sooner or later, their thoughts, their plans, their ideas is going to come to the fore again. And if they don't get opportunity to fulfill that within their new environment, then they're back to square one. They've gone in full circle. One other situation that leadership is asked to help in is that of counsel. They are approached. They are made aware of a situation. They're asked for guidance. And you agree with the people? We'll take time out. We'll wait on the Lord. We will seek God's face. And having heard from the Lord, you meet up and you share what the Lord has laid upon your heart concerning the particular situation. And the people, they listen. They seem to be receptive to it. They seem to be open to it. And you come away from the meeting thinking, well, that was good. We made some progress there. And then confirmation comes. You know it's confirmation. They know it's confirmation. They come and tell you so. And you think to yourself, great, that's it done and dusted. And a couple of days later, what do they do? They go and do the very opposite to the counsel that was given them. And a little down the line, in conversation with them, the usual for me anyway as well, how's things? How's things going? And there's that hesitation. And you know, I dread it because I almost instinctively know what's coming. Well, you know, really, and then they start to share. The situation they're in, 
the situation they're having to deal with and you're standing there and you know God never intended them to be there. God never intended them to be dealing, <coughs> excuse me, with that situation. If they had gone God's way, they wouldn't be in that position. But people, when God created man and woman, he didn't create them robots. He gave them a mind. He gave them the ability to think. He gave them the freedom to make decisions. And when God <clears throat> wanted man to love him, to follow him, to serve him, he wanted it to be because man wanted to do it, not because he was programmed to do it. And that is the reality this evening. God gives us opportunity to hear him, to follow him, to serve him. But the question is, are our ears tuned to hear? Are our hearts open to receive? Are we willing, in many cases, to change to suit God's plan and purpose? The prophet Samuel, speaking to King Saul in chapter 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22, he there makes a very profound statement when he says, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. What is he saying? Sacrifices, commendable and good though they be, they mean nothing if we are not prepared to obey God. And in this 21st century, there are many who are found in that situation. They feel, well, I don't really want to do what God wants me to do, but I'll sacrifice of substance, time, money, and they have their rewards. But God says, he'd rather have your obedience than your sacrifice. And so to the two passages that we referred to. As I view the children of Israel and the nation of Israel, as I was picturing it, trying to focus upon it just during the week, the picture that came to my mind's eye was God standing in heaven, behind him, the storehouse of heaven, the doors open fully, and God looking down upon the nation of Israel, and he had such great plans for them. He just wanted to share blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon them. And as I thought of the nation of Israel, I thought of the plans that God had made that have never been fulfilled. Not because God didn't want to bless them and fulfill those blessings, but because of the waywardness of the nation. And as we look at Numbers chapter 14, we find this is the situation in which the nation is found in. The land of promise, the land flowing with milk and honey is there, ready to possess, ready for the taking. But because of their attitude, because of their murmurings, because of their disbelief, God passes judgment. In the previous chapter, as I referred to over the Christmas period, God has spoken to Moses to send out the 12 spies. They spied out the land. 
They came back with evidence of the fruitfulness of the land, and they came back and made their report. But 10 said, we can't do it. It's beyond us. It's impossible. Joshua and Kayla said, we are well able. But the 10 stirred up the nation. God was angry, and so God passes judgment. And in verses 29 and 30 of chapter 14, there Moses publicly declares to the nation God's judgment. He publicly tells them that God is displeased with them. God is angry with them. And that God has passed sentence that they shall not possess the land. Joshua, Caleb shall. Those 20 years and younger shall. But no one else will enter the land of Canaan. And this is where we find ourselves. God spoke. There was no question. If we could just grasp the reality of this. There was no question or doubt in the nation's mind that what Moses had said was what God had told him to say. There was no debate. No query. So it was clear cut presented to them but we realize that there were those who were determined to do their own thing there was a foolish attempt made is how I would describe it there were those who decided well they admitted they had sinned but they decided well we'll go ahead and do what God wanted us to do anyway and maybe Possibly, hopefully, he'll grant us success. They were eager to go forward into the land of Canaan. How sad when God wanted them. They rebelled and now they want to go. For it tells us the day after the judgment that God had pronounced on the nation of Israel, they rose up early in the morning. They mustered their forces They made ready to enter the land of Canaan. And they begged Moses to lead them. But Moses said it was too late. It was the right plan. But it was too late. 24 hours earlier, when God wanted them to do it, it was spot on. God's plan, God's timing. But now... It might have been the right plan the day before, but it's all wrong now. And it's definitely the wrong timing. They completely disregarded what God had said. And as I'm thinking that, I'm thinking, well, if there was any query or doubt as to whether God had actually said it or not, I possibly could be charitable towards them. But the fact It was so clear, definite, and plain. No one could doubt or question. It was God who had spoken. And yet, they say, well, we're going to do it anyway. It doesn't matter what God said. We have skills. We have abilities. We have capabilities. We will go and do what we want. And that's my interpretation of their way of thinking. Moses said he wouldn't go with them, 
he told them not to go, they would suffer defeat. In verses 41 and 44, he gives them warnings of the danger. And yet, never was a people so determined to do their own thing against God's wishes. God bade them go, they would not. He forbade them, and they went. And verse 45 tells us what the outcome was. The enemy had posted themselves upon the roof, the hilltops. They had appointed lookouts. And when they saw them move to Canaan, they moved towards them. And they attacked them. They defeated them. And no doubt they probably killed many of them. But as we view the defeat, it's not just the defeat. It's the disgrace that they brought upon themselves and above all, upon God. When the children of Israel were delivered out of Egypt, God did the work. When the children of Israel were standing before the Red Sea, God parted the Red Sea. They only had to obey and follow across. When Pharaoh and his armies pursued them, and when they were in the midst of the Red Sea, God closed the waters. The children of Israel hadn't to draw a sword, fire a spear, shoot an arrow. It was all of God. The nations that saw and heard had a healthy respect and regard for the nation of Israel. They said, their God is a great God. Their God is a greater God than our God. And we'll not give them any bother. We'll give them a wide berth. There was a fear and respect for the children of Israel. But what now? For those looking on, well, the Amalekites and the Canaanites, they might have said, well, who are they? And yet they defeated the children of Israel. Oh, maybe their God's good. He might have been strong one day, but he's weak now. Maybe their God's not as strong and as good as we thought he was. This was their thinking, I would suggest to you. And also in that, they had lost their security. For the nations, the children of Israel, they would think would be fair play now. Their armies would be as good and as capable as the Amalekites and the Canaanites. And if they could do it, so could they. This was the situation in which they found themselves. It was not God's plan, what God had planned for them. God had a great thing planned for them. The land flowing with milk and honey. Prosperity, comfort, luxury beyond their wildest dreams is what God had planned for them. And look what they ended up with. They had lost their security. They had shut their ears to what God had said. And they got everything wrong. Well, does the scripture be presented in this session when it says, ears have they, but they hear not. This was the situation in which they found themselves in. All wrong, plan wrong, timing wrong, everything wrong. And with that came consequences as well. But let's move forward 
quite a period of time. And we find ourselves in Second Samuel chapter 5. The situation, it's the same nation. Quite a span of time between the two situations. But what took place was completely different. The Israelites were up against the Philistines. There was two battles. Firstly, they rose, the Philistines, Philistines rose up because David had been appointed as king. And they had tried to crush his government in his infancy. On both occasions, they formed up in the Valley of Rehum near Jerusalem. They hoped to possess that. That was their desire. They hoped also to topple David and his government. They hoped to attack David before he could fortify his situation. And the wording spreading themselves would indicate a very large number indeed. But in both cases, David made ready for war. They put on the whole armor. They put on their weaponry. They made ready for war. But before they went to war, David inquired of the Lord. David could have said, well, this is what I plan to do. But I want to hear what God wants me to do. His inquiry was twofold. Firstly, shall I go up? And God's reply was, they are Israel's enemy, go up. His second request was, Wilt thou deliver them into my hands? And God's reply was, I will doubtless do it. And David had a great army to command, yet he relied more on God's promise than his own forces. In the first engagement, David defeated the Philistines with the sword. He smote them and he put their gods to shame. You know, they were putting their trust in their gods. And they had brought their gods into the battlefield uh, as the Israel, Israelites brought the Ark of the Covenant in. And they thought their gods would fight for them and their gods would win the battle. But such was the defeat. They fled and they left their gods behind. They were too big and heavy to carry. They weren't able to fend for themselves. And it tells us that David and his men made use of the plunder but the images they burnt as God had instructed them. The second engagement, one could easily say, well, we don't need to inquire of the Lord. We know what worked the first time. We'll do the same the second. But that wasn't the situation, thankfully. Because while the Philistines might have first thought the first time they were caught on the hop, they were caught unawares. If they had implemented the second time the same plan, they wouldn't have been caught out. They'd have been ready for them. But you see, God knew that. Man mightn't think of it, but God did. And when it came, there was a change of plan. They were told to stand in front of them and compass behind them over against the mulberry trees. They had their armor on. They had their weaponry. 
And as I thought, and as I could well imagine there were those in David's army, he says, come on. What are we standing around here waiting for? Let's get at them. We give them a thrash in the last time. We'll do the same thing this time. But they had to stand and wait. That was the instruction of God. Israel were to stand still to see the salvation of the Lord. God promised to attack the enemy himself by an invisible host of angels. The sound of the going was the move of God's army to the fight. It was also a signal to David when to move. Can I say there are times in our lives when God wants us to stand still? And it's very hard to stand still. We want to be doing, but we must realize there are times when the battle is the Lord's, the victory is the Lord's, and we are asked to stand and be witnesses to the wonderful outworking of God's plans and purposes. The mulberry, the rust sound of their going in the mulberry trees was the, the note that David and his army were waiting for. That was the sign to move, but it was also an alarm to the enemy that caused confusion. And so fleeing from David, they ran into those who were round about at the back and fell into David's army, which lay behind. David obeyed his orders. He waited till God moved and stirred them, but not until then did he attack the Philistines and attack them as far as the borders of their own country. In other words, he chased them back to where they came from. What I want to consider this evening is how's your plan? For the children of Israel, in numbers, they got it so, so wrong. In Samuel, they got it so, so right. God's plan, God's timing was spot on. But how's your plan? Is it God's plan? If it's God's plan, it's a great plan. But how's your patience? You know the saying, don't you? Patience is a virtue. Possess it if you can. Seldom in a woman, never in a man. How's your patience? <coughs> and as I was given some consideration to this, I said, like, well, Lord, now, if your plan is made known, why delay? And I more or less answered my own question. God's waiting for everything to be right. Everything to just be as he planned it to be. And then it came back to me, and that includes me. That includes me. Am I right physically, mentally, spiritually, where God wants me to be for the outworking of God's plan in which he chooses to use me? And as I thought along those lines, I was directed to one or two in Scripture. First one came was Abraham. In Ur of the Chaldeans, he was raised. A pagan society. Yet Scripture tells us Abraham did not worship the pagan gods. 
from his arrival on the scene, God's hand was upon him. And yet, when we come to uh, chapter 3, or chapter 12 of Genesis, we see God speaking to Abraham in Haran. He's 75 years of age. And I thought to myself, well, why do you wait till you're 75? But God had his purpose. And the thought and suggestion I leave with you is this. It wasn't until Abraham was of that age that he was in his relationship with God such that God could take him forward in the fulfillment of his plan. I offer it as a suggestion. We take Moses in chapter 1 of Exodus, Pharaoh declared all the male children were to be destroyed, yet he was preserved. Chapter 2, we, we see him in the, in the ark in the river. Now who in their wildest imagination would have thought that Pharaoh's daughter would find him, would take a look at him, fall in love with him, decide to raise him as one of her own, in contrary to what her father and the law he had passed. But that happened. And for 40 years, he lived and was raised an Egyptian. And we know how he slew the Egyptian who was afflicting the Israelite. And he fled to the backside of the desert. And at 80 years of age, God spoke to him from the burning bush. And as I thought on that, 40 years of getting to know God. 40 years of getting to know how God thinks, how God operates. When God spoke to him from the burning bush, there was a bit of debate about his ability to speak but there was no debate about the plan that God presented to him. Saul of Tarsus, after his conversion on the road to Damascus, spent some three years in the Arabian desert getting to know God before he entered the ministry. I would suggest to you, the 40 years were not wasted. There were 40 years of preparation as were the 40 years previous, because when he stood in Pharaoh's palace, he knew how the role of authority worked. He knew the protocol. He wasn't ignorant. He wasn't standing, well, how does this work, or what do I do next? He was well used to that. God was in every step of his life preparing him for the task that lay before him. We think of King David, Chapter 16, Samuel anoints him to be king. They had to go and find him in the fields and bring him. He was minding the sheep. And I thought of it, you know, there he is, the prophet of the Lord's there. He anoints him to be king of Israel. There's no flashing lights. There's no big how to do. He had to go back to the fields, look after the sheep. For him, at that moment in time, nothing changed. And then we move on to chapter 17 and we see Saul is in battle with the Philistines. David's three elder brothers 
are soldiers of Saul's army. And of course, we know the story, don't we? David's father tells him, get somebody to look after the sheep of we earn for you to do. I want you to take some refreshments to your brothers on the battlefield. And when he arrives, there is Goliath taunting the Saul's army. And David says to him, look, is nobody going to do anything? Are you going to stand there? And his oldest, older brothers, oldest brother says, well, what about the sheep? In other words, away back to the sheep. You don't know what you're talking about. But we know the story, how he slew Goliath. But yet, he was 30 years of age before he was king. He had rallied an army. He had led an army. He had won battles. He had credentials. He may have been anointed a king as a lad, but in God's time, he became king. He was a man, not only in the natural, but in the spiritual. But what of Jesus himself? How long has the plan of redemption been in place? What does scripture tell us? Before there was a sinner, there was a savior. And yet, even when he came as a babe in Bethlehem's manger, and apart from the time when he was 12, he was in the temple, we know nothing of his early days. But I would suggest to you, it was not waiting on Jesus to mature in spirituality for God, Jesus' relationship with his family father was perfect. It couldn't have been any better. But the delay was in the fulfillment of Scripture. For when Jesus came, he was born a Jew. He honored and obeyed the Jewish law and tradition, and he also fulfilled Scripture. The psalmist in Psalm 110, verse 4, speaking of Jesus, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Paul in Hebrews takes up the same theme in chapter 5 and verse 6, chapter 6, verse 20, and chapter 7, verse 17. As he saith also in another place, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The age of priesthood was 30 years of age. Jesus was 30 before he turned his back on the carpenter's shop. He was 30 before he preached his first sermon. He was 30 before he performed his first miracle. God's plan, God's timing. Sometimes we may not understand it, but we are called upon to trust him for he doesn't make mistakes. He's never early. He's never late. He's always spot on time. And as I view the children of Israel, in my mind's eye, I view us, the church of Jesus Christ. For God, as he looks upon us, hasn't chosen a people, hasn't chosen a nation, but he has chosen a family. We're the family of God. We're sons and daughters of the King of kings and Lord of lords. He loved us, he has saved us, and he is keeping us. And when he looks down upon us, 
and that big storehouse behind him with the doors open wide. He just wants to empty it upon us. He just wants to bless us. I don't know what plans God has for 2010, but I know he has great plans. And I also know that if we are in the right place and in the right relationship with him, he wants to involve us in those plans. How's your plan this evening? Is it God's plan? How's your patience? Wouldn't it be a shame to spoil a great plan by getting the timing completely wrong? No, the psalmist said in Psalm 40 and verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. For the psalmist, he had discovered the secret in every situation, in every set of circumstances that he found himself in, to wait patiently on the Lord. And in his good time, he would respond and he would answer. Friends, tonight, we are a privileged people. We are God's people. And oh, it excites me as I think of this year. I've been praying, as you have no doubt, for revival. And my mind has been focused much on the 1859 revival. And I've read some accounts of various ministers of that time. And I'm just longing, God, do it again. Do it again. May the Lord bless you.